Welcome to We Got Goals, a podcast by asweatlife.com. I'm Kristen Guile, the Chief Content Officer, and today we are continuing our deep dive into the environment and climate change. Now, despite your best intentions, maybe your eyes glaze over a little bit anytime you read about climate change policy. If yes, this is the podcast episode for you. Today, we bring on Nicole Lower, a strategist, adjunct professor at NYU, and climate change advocate in New York. After accidentally becoming a competitive triathlete, Nicole now balances her passions for training and for climate change policy with a little bit of fashion thrown in. Yes, she contains multitudes. She talks us through Climate Policy 101, what the Green New Deal actually means, and the bipartisan infrastructure deal that Biden recently signed. We also talk about climate anxiety, the feeling of dread that's induced by the thought of the future of the climate, and how that might affect women differently than men. And food for thought, the term climate anxiety hit its peak popularity in August of 2021, and it's remained a popular search term ever since. Similar to last week's podcast episode, where Azora Zoe of Gold Dune shared her perspective that sustainability is a spectrum, Nicole also explains why it's a myth that you don't have to be a perfect climate activist in order to be an effective climate activist. One of the most fascinating themes running through our conversation was something surprisingly uplifting, that climate change is not the fault nor the responsibility of any one individual. Moreover, Nicole identifies herself as a climate optimist who believes that there's time to turn this spaceship Earth around. It's not an individual's job to solve the climate crisis, you'll hear her say in this episode. This is a bigger issue that should fall on the shoulders of corporations in tandem with policy pushing those corporations. She also points to the factoid that it only takes 3.5% of a population to move a movement along, which seems totally manageable. So if you're looking for a little bit of a half, a glass half full take on climate change, keep listening to the rest of this episode with Nicole. And now on to the interview. Welcome to We Got Goals, a podcast from asweatlife.com. I'm Kristen Guile. I'm the Chief Content Officer of A Sweat Life. And this month, we are continuing our deep dive on all things environmental. Uh, we're talking about different eco-friendly options for your everyday life. We're talking about climate change and policy and eco-anxiety and greenwashing and what exactly all of those terms mean for us. And to help me wade through all of that today, we have Nicole Lower on the podcast. She is a triathlete and fitness enthusiast, as well as a student at Columbia University and a professor at New York University and the Fashion Institute of Technology. In all of those things, she describes herself as a climate nerd, and she is an advocate for climate change and public policy. And as she says in her Instagram bio, that is quite a mix. Nicole, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. How are you doing? I'm good. Um, we were just, you know, I was forcing you into admiring my dog right before we started recording. Um, so if you hear her whining in the background, that is what she's doing. I think she also just dropped. Oh, yeah. She's dropping a bone right at my feet to try and get my attention. So we'll try to keep recording despite Phoebe's obvious indifference to the matter of climate change. Um, but I think she should be more concerned about this, honestly. <laughs> Agree. Agree. Affects us all. Yeah. <laughs> Phoebe, if only you knew that climate change was going to determine how many treats you do or do not get for the next several years of your life. Uh, okay, Nicole. So 
before I think we knew you as a climate change advocate and a policy matter expert, you were also a fitness writer. Is that right? Fitness writer, yeah. Um, and competitive triathlete now turned casual marathoner. <laughs> I never knew the words casual marathoner could be said together in the same sentence, but there you are. <laughs> Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background then tell us, you know, we are a health and wellness website with our roots in the fitness community. We, out of our core staff, I think we have a few marathons under our belt, a couple of triathletes in our mix for sure. So tell us a little bit about your history with the the fitness industry, how you got started in triathlons and casual marathons. And let's start with that. Yeah, of course. Um, so I should preface by saying that I grew up as a couch potato. Um, I did not understand, Great preface. <laughs> did not understand sports. I was definitely like the young girl who like had a doctor's note every time we had to run the mile. I don't know if that's like a relevant thing for your listeners. For Gen Z. Do they understand that? I don't know. I don't think so. They're like running. Um, uh, so yeah, I just did not value sports at all. Um, early in my career, I worked for a company called NARS Cosmetics. Um, you know, I did do cycling classes. SoulCycle was really big at that time. So I was doing cycling classes like two or three times a week. Um, I remember the president of NARS came to me and tried to recruit me onto Team NARS, which is their annual triathlon team that travels to Hawaii to compete um, and raise money for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. I was like, this sounds insane because triathlon, as you know, is swimming, biking, running. Um, my mom was a competitive, almost Olympic diver, but I could not swim. I also could not ride a bike um, and lived in New York City. So obviously, like at the time, that just made no sense to me. And then from like a running capacity, I don't think I could really run above like three miles. Um, so you were three for three, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, pretty much. So she, the president was just like, we can equip you with a coach um, and we can get you trained up in three to four months. At the same time, my dad actually had cancer. So there was like this like extra motivation to join the team, I guess. So I joined Team NARS, um, spent three months training, learned to swim, bike and long distance run, long distance meaning six miles. Um, yeah. And I competed in my first triathlon and I, again, like I was such a noob to sports. I had no idea what any of the terminology meant, but I placed in that first triathlon in my age group. Um, yeah. And it, it was on again, like total noob. I didn't realize that it was the, the, um, course that is like the world renowned Hawaii triathlon course that like is on worlds, but it was with Lava, Lava Man. Yeah. So, I mean, like for me, my, my, the coach, so I placed, I booked a flight or my flight was booked for like the next day um, back to New York city. And when I landed, my coach had texted me and he was just like, this is something you should consider doing. Um, so I signed up for more races. I kept, I kept winning and like placing. Um, Adidas reached out to me to be an ambassador and things just kind of snowballed from there. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, yeah, I started writing about just like wellness and fitness out of all of that. I would be so delighted to accidentally fall into a hobby and then discover that I'm good at it. Like why, why doesn't that happen more in everyday life? That must've been such a fun like discovery. And it sounds like you actually enjoyed the training process too, not just the race day process. Yeah. Um, what's interesting though, is that in re- you saying that just now in retrospect, all other hobbies I, that I've picked up over the years, I actually really suck at. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll never be as good at those things as I was this one thing that I stumbled on. Yeah. 
Well, then I'm curious too, when you were doing all of this training and I assume you were outdoors a lot, did you feel like the training aspect like sort of helped you feel connected to the environment? Was that when you started to notice more of the world around you or am I just reaching here? No, no, for sure. Um, yeah, a lot of my training was outside. Um, and it brought in like a world that, it, you know, New York is so chaotic. And in this world, it kind of brought me a little bit closer to, to your point of nature. But also, you know, I grew up um, in a farm town. So like on a bunch of rural land. And I guess I just didn't until I started training outdoors. I didn't really realize how much I actually was missing like that environmental like touch point um, and just nature touch point. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's something we see a lot too. Um, I'm in Chicago right now. I'm probably in a similar box in the sky as you might be, um, or as a lot of our listeners are. And that's one of the things that is the downside to living here is that it's really hard to find those nature touch points. And I'm even saying that as someone who has the advantage of living a five-minute walk from Lake Michigan and who can go out there and like see actual water and sand and grass a lot of the days. but it's something that I think about a lot too, in terms of how we're viewing the environment is it's so easy for me to go days and days with feeling super disconnected from it and disconnected from nature and the world around me. And I I get down this path of wondering whether that sort of affects environmental anxiety or just feeling like you can kind of disconnect yourself from it and push off thinking about the, the scary things. And those are all things we can touch on later, but, um, And so you have retired from competitive triathlon and now you say you're a casual marathoner. Tell me what that means. Yeah. So in the pandemic, when, I mean, obviously when we entered the pandemic, I had signed up for a bunch of races, triathlons and marathons. Um, Obviously all of the gyms shut down in New York. Um, So I was kind of just like, I have a trainer in my apartment, but like, as you may or may not know, trainers are really loud. Um, for a bike the- trainer, we should yeah. say, not like a personal human trainer. Yeah, bike trainer. Sorry, I have a bike trainer. And um, I have one of the quietest ones on the market, but it's still very loud for the people under you. Um, and with my work schedule, I can only really train like first thing in the morning, like 5 a.m. So I was just kind of like, oh, shoot, I can only run outside at this yeah. point. Um, so I... I have to be honest, I haven't swam since the beginning of the pandemic because I just haven't had access to a pool yeah, outside yeah. of like maybe a quick trip upstate. And then um, same with like my bike, like I haven't done any long rides or anything. So the marathon aspect came about simply because all I had access to was really running. Um, my endurance was really like up to par with like what a triathlon would be. It was just more or less getting into the mechanics and getting my body into like a more long distance friendly mode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we recently wrapped up a program with our ambassador community where uh, a handful of them joined us in a swimming program where we just practiced. Like, it was like a swim team, we called it. Uh, and we did it like every week. And it, it was one of the things too that I, w- I grew up swimming. So I'm most comfortable with that. Biking is still a hell no for me. <laughs> but the access to a pool, it can be really limiting in in big cities. Um, so yeah, it's not surprising that you pivoted to running and are finding a different way of enjoying all of that endurance that you've built up over the, the last several years. Um, okay. So now you call yourself a climate nerd. I know you've been on the Today's Show and you've got a lot of great like insights and expertise on climate change policy. Where did that passion start and what's that journey been like of you pursuing that? 
Yeah. Yeah. So, um, my dad actually owns a recycling center and he has my entire life in Baltimore. So like I have grown up in that world. I mean, like recycling, it is what it is for those that are listening that have an eco ear or eye on the ground. Um, it is what it is, but so I've been in like in and around the world of, um, environmental work for, I guess, a really long time. Um, you know, I moved to New York to pursue a career in fashion. I went to the Fashion Institute of Technology. Um, I, you know, about six or seven years into my career, um, I was offered a job opportunity to move to Paris to work for a pretty well-known fashion designer. This, I think, is reminiscent of, like, people have told Hills. me... I was gonna say some, some TV show. Um, that was you're my Lauren, you're Lauren Conrad choosing between a dirtbag boyfriend and a trip to Paris. Although I hope it wasn't exactly like that. Well, it, I mean, it kind of was because I ended up coming back because I was like on the verge of getting engaged. Um, and I, in retrospect, I, I don't know how, how else I would have done that, but yeah. So anyways, back to the climate, the climate. Um, <laughs> so I, t- I ended up turning down the opportunity, um, which was really sad, but I had to sort of understand what I wanted my future to look like. Um, I've always been like an emerging technology nerd. Um, so I went down this path of like AI and climate tech. Um, first working for a company called Microsoft and their artificial intelligence lab. Well, a company called Microsoft. Have you have you heard of them? And then another company called Hypergiant Industries, where you know I was there for quite some time as a consultant. I went full time. Um, and this what ended up happening is I was tasked with a project that was a climate prototype that um can sequester carbon out of the air. So if you've for anyone who's listening, um carbon capture technology is like what scientists and the government are touting as being like the save all for, you know, our future, because even if we stop um, putting, you know, carbon into the air now, like it's the earth is still going to warm. So we need something else that can suck it out. Um, So anyways, back to the point, worked on a project, a carbon capture product um, that ended up getting into the Smithsonian. So I have a project in the Smithsonian, but it couldn't get funded like in any way, shape or form. Like there was no way this product would make it into market. And like, so the individuals could use it. So businesses could use it. And I personally was just so frustrated that like, how could that happen? Um, So I kind of applied to Columbia as like um, a revenge application. And then I was like, if I get in, then I'll just like put my life on pause and like go back to school and get my master's in climate science and public policy. And then I'll figure it out from there. So um, I graduated in May, (laughs) got in, I graduated in May. Um, I started working with the Department of Energy this week um, in their communications department, helping oversee external communications that go to um, essentially Congress on the new infrastructure law that was just passed. And then also um, my background is in digital strategy. So digital projects for the Department of Energy, helping helping make them more public accessible, because as we all know, government assets are not usually like the most, most friendly. They could use a little more color, I think. <laughs> a little more excitement. Just a little bit. Yeah. Um, well, I don't think I realized that you were starting this new job right this week. So congratulations. That's <laughs> really exciting. Um, you have a lot of different interests <laughs> and you're very well-rounded. So uh, you're super fascinating already. And I'm so excited for our listeners to hear this. You mentioned the infrastructure bill that just passed. What can you tell us translated down for non-governmental speak about what that sort of covers and why it's important to us right now? 
Yeah. So I'll try to keep it mostly um, through the lens of climate just to make it really easy. But the easiest way to explain the new bipartisan infrastructure law is that it is the most important law that's ever been passed to help make the United States more climate resilient, um, help protect communities that are the most vulnerable to climate change. So there's like a climate and environmental justice side of things, but also, um, you know, as climate change gets worse, um, a lot of the infrastructure that we have in place now, meaning like buildings, public transportation, and even down to like our internet, um, you know, is, is eroding very quickly. So this bill and this law are put in place to help fund, you know, the modernization of all of those things. So not only is it making not only is it like reestablishing America to be resilient against climate change, which is only going to get worse, um, it puts us more or less on a competitive edge um, from a global standpoint as well. So some of the things that like are actually tactic, like that those are a lot of words, but the things that are actually tangible out of that are, you know, there's a focus on um, improving roads and bridges. Um, there's an investment in public transit. There's a push for internet access for all. Um, so that's really great. The United States is really focused on electric vehicles. So there's a huge push in this law to make sure that most highways ha are equipped with EV chargers, um, upgrading the power infrastructure and our power grids. And then, as I said, there's a component of weather resilience. Um, you know, I think just localizing it and thinking about like, like a neighborhood like Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn, it's like, how do we put um, solutions in place to help protect a community like that from something like the urban heat island effect? So mm -hmm. essentially urban heat island effect is just when you live in like a super densely populated area with a lot of asphalt, it's typically hotter um, than other areas like somewhere like Central Park that may have more greenery. Um, so it's, you know, how do we make areas like that cooler? Um, so individuals that are essentially forced being have been forced historically to live there just don't have to worry about that. Awesome. So I asked you when we were emailing back and forth before this interview, I was pretty honest in saying that, you know, I feel a little intimidated by climate change policy and understanding everything that's going on right now. And I'm guessing, I hope audience, please, <laughs> some of our audience might feel the same way. Um, so I asked you to sort of talk us through like a climate policy 101 about, you know, what other things we need to know beyond this infrastructure bill, um, anything that maybe I've skimmed through in the past and could be paying more attention to. Um, so I'd love to hear like just sort of a status update, <laughs> if you could, a, a morning skim of climate policy 101 as best as you can describe it. Yeah, so um, I think the infrastructure law is probably the most important one. Um, and yeah. continue to follow that is like, that's probably the most major. I think, you know, it's not it's not an individual's job to um, solve the climate crisis. This is this is a bigger yeah. This is like a bigger um, issue that should fall on the shoulders of um, corporations in tandem with like policy pushing those corporations. Mm -hmm. um, there's nothing really set in stone or solid that's outside of this law in the U.S. Um, but I think the things that are kind of interesting and worth considering are, you know, there's a lot of talk around something called the Green New Deal. And that's like a global conversation that's sort of happening. The issue with the Green New Deal is that there's no set parameters around what that actually is. So if you, so 
if you're interested in any sort of policy, you can go to, you know, Congress's website, search, search a topic and something like the Green New Deal will come up. But these sorts of things don't typically like the Green New Deal hasn't made it very far. It's been sponsored by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, so, I mean, educating yourself on just the general topics that are being discussed in the Green New Deal is probably like the best way to, you know, continue to educate yourself and watch the conversation move forward. Um other than that, though, you know, tapping into those specific areas, the next best thing is like calling your representatives or emailing yes. your representatives because um, otherwise they're just making decisions. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know that most people know this, but it only takes 3.5% of a population to actually move a movement along. Um, so that's like not that many. No, that's the face that I made was like a face of optimism, not not dismay. Um, yeah, I was just yeah. surprised. 3.5% is not that many. Yeah. So it's, you know, the, the more people that we can get mobilized and in front of policymakers, um, who maybe aren't as like climate oriented as I am, you know, and pushing the agenda forward, like that's, that's that. And that's kind of like the one-on-one of what the landscape of climate policy right now, I I think. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, I feel like it's worth mentioning here that calling your representative sounds a little, I don't know, maybe a little scary, maybe a little, oh, that sounds like so much work to some people. It's really not that hard. You put them on your, your contacts list. Um, I, I was calling my representatives for a while back back in 2016. And it's super easy to just dial the number, leave a message, read your script. And I'm sure there are probably scripts available online for the different policies that you want to be talking about or different initiatives that you feel strongly about in your area. Um, does that sound on track? Not yeah. as scary as... Not talking to someone on an actual phone. Totally. And I think people think like when they say like, call your representatives, that's so horrible. Cause it's like, you're not actually talking to someone typically. It's like, you're leaving a message, there are scripts online and the same with emails. Like I love to batch emails to like different representatives and just hit send for like every day of the month about a topic that's important to me. It makes me sound a little crazy, but that's, that's how we get, that's how we get things moving along. That's the best use of Gmail schedule function that I, I could think of in the yeah. moment. Yeah. Um, You've sort of hinted to this in the previous 20 minutes of this interview. Um, you know, when you were talking about recycling, it is what it is, and how you know the the weight of climate change is not on the individual. Um, which on one hand is sort of freeing because it's like, okay, it's not it's not my complete responsibility to save the world and go Greta Thunberg on everybody. But at the same time, you know, we do want to be able to take that personal responsibility for our actions and the things that we do. How do you sort of think about that balance between it's not all on me, but I do have a responsibility? Yeah. um, And especially working in climate work, I think ties into this too, is like we as individuals can only do so much. And I think if you're not working in it, you only have bandwidth or the resources to do so much. Um, And I don't think like there is no perfect climate activist. There's no perfect set of rules or actions that make you the perfect climate activist. Or, you know, you can be a climate activist and all you do is decide to stop eating meat. You know what I mean? Like that's or stop eating meat like once a day, you know. So I think there's this idea around climate activism right now that like you have to be perfect. And I think that, you know, it goes in tandem with like 
what we see on like social. Um, it's just like, it's essentially people think of climate activism as this highlight reel and you're always on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think though that spurs a lot of anxiety and, you know, we touched on climate anxiety a little bit earlier, a lot of anxiety around the topic. Um, and, you know, when it does come to thinking about like individual action, you know, like doing something is still better than doing nothing. And that can be one thing. And that's sort of my yeah. take on it. Um, yeah. I'm someone that has phased in and out of eating meat for times. And I mean, I only, there's two sides to it too. It's like, you know, I grew up on in a farm town where like the livelihood of like my neighbor is their cow, their, yeah. their productions and them selling cows. And so it's like, I see that side of it, you know, and then I also, have, we have the climate side of it. And it's just, it's, it, 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 that idea tends to get too granular and it's like, we should be focusing on bigger solutions, Mm -hmm. um, that aren't necessarily those things. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like that old saying that don't let the perfect be the, the enemy of good. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, let's get into the climate anxiety of it all a little bit. Cause I think this is a relatively new phrase and this is a, a note to my future self to like check the Google stats for how many people have searched climate anxiety and how that has changed over the years. Cause I think it's a pretty new framing of what a lot of, I'd say millennials and probably Gen Zers are feeling right now. So as you understand it, what is climate anxiety? Yeah. Climate anxiety, as I understand it, and from the very uh, limited studies and research that out that is out there, you know, climate anxiety is this feeling of dread or anxiety that's induced by the thought of the future of the climate. And that can, it can be super narrowly focused. Like I meet a lot of young women. um, I don't want to exclude men from this, but it's mostly young women that I meet um, who have decided not to have a family um, simply because they be on the climate crisis. But, you know, for this conversation, like the the climate crisis is something that they're worried about bringing a child into. So that's like one tangible example of like how climate anxiety can manifest. Um, you know, it does, it does have greater implications though on how people live their lives. Then there's also, you know, people that live possibly in coastal towns um, or surrounded by water. You know, there is this, this resounding climate anxiety around like, you know, tides are going to rise. It's not even, a, or the shorelines are going to rise. It's not a matter of like how much. Yes. Yeah, it's happening. So yeah. there's, there's, there could be anxiety tied to location or relocation um, mm-hmm. of a specific community or individual. So yeah, TLDR, that's kind of what climate anxiety is. Great, great use of TLDR. Uh, <laughs> have you felt like you've experienced climate anxiety? I mean, you're facing these things in your job so often that I feel like you know, similar to maybe what teachers and parents have experienced over these last few years, like it can feel really overwhelming and like tunnel vision on all of this stuff. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a saying, um, that someone had shared with me yesterday. I think it was, um, I shared on Instagram, but it was like burnt out people can't fix a burnt out world. And that kind of goes for people that work in climate work, climate activism. Um, I, myself, I'm what they call a climate optimist, which there are very few of me. Um, I actually do think we can save the world. And I think that, you know, we can turn the climate crisis around. It's just a matter of having people do the work. Um, So my, like, I do have climate anxiety. I don't anticipate on having a family simply because of the deterrent climate. Um, So I think, you know, there are, while I am on this earth, you know, there are ways though that I am focused on, you know, my own personal well-being um, and, trying to make 
you know, whomever, whomever's children around me have, have not so much climate anxiety, I guess. I, I love that you identify as a climate optimist. It, are there any signs or anything that you've noticed recently that gives you like more hope or any, any good signs, any trending positive things that could maybe make our audience feel a little more optimistic too? Yeah, I think for the U.S. specifically, this bill passing is like kind of major. Um, COP26 or COP26 is like one of the biggest climate summits out there that has that in tandem with the IPCC report, which is like an international climate report that comes out um, every so many years. Those have gotten more attention in the last year than they like ever have, like in total. Yeah. I think that yeah. that's amazing. You know, I saw a recent Twitter report, even that the word sustainability is on the rise, like 600%. I want to send through a fact check on that one, but it's, it's a lot. It's like people, people care. Um, it's just, I think people need and want to see solutions. And I think the bigger thing at play is like, there aren't ne- there's never going to be one solution for climate change mm-hmm. or the climate crisis. It's going to be a lot of solutions. And I see a lot of those solutions or solutions beginning to be at play. So for me, that's, that's why I associate myself as a climate optimist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think what you were saying too, about the mentions of sustainability being up and I've, I was doing a little reading on like the history of earth day, super lame, but there I was, <laughs> and, you know, they were talking in this article about how at the time it was such a youth movement. And, um, you know, I think a lot of times you might also assume that that's still the same, you know, we have all these amazing young activists, but what I'm hearing from you saying is that it can be anybody. You don't have to be a hardcore vegan. You don't have to be someone who lives with zero waste and can throw your trash away in a tiny thimble at the end of every year. Anyone can be any spectrum of climate activist, regardless of how much you can accomplish on your own. Because at the end of the day, it's not about that. It's about a team effort. Totally. Yeah. Um, Okay. Well, let's start to wrap this up just a little bit, giving you a very slow lead time to when we're going to let you go. Um, What are you doing these days to feel, stay connected to nature? What are your favorite ways to enjoy the environment around you in New York or in other places upstate you mentioned? What are you loving right now? Yeah. Um, I, there's a few different things. I run outside most days of the week. Um, you know, I say I'm a casual marathoner, but I've shifted my mileage down in the week so I can enjoy more daily runs versus like longer runs. So that's something I do. I actually live on the waterfront in Brooklyn. So I usually take daily walks. Um, my family, as I mentioned, you know, they live in a super rural community. So we're approaching summertime. I don't know when this is going to be released, but my family has a pool um, and I have 13 nibblings, which I just learned is like the short for nieces and nephews. So I don't know if I'm saying that right, but you are, but it's such a weird little word. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So I have 13 nieces and nephews. Wow. Yeah. And they all live back home. So I'll probably start taking like weekend trips, um, especially as my degree is wrapping up and spending Mm -hmm. by the pool um, Mm -hmm. and maybe on one of my siblings' farms. And yeah. So that sounds amazing and idyllic. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I can't wait. This episode will air in April because obviously April and and Earth Month and all that stuff. But um, I have hope that we will also have pool weather sometime, sometime if not before this episode airs, then shortly thereafter. One thing I didn't mention to you is, you know, you, you're a professor at the Fashion Institute of Technology. You have a clear history in fashion. 
Is there anything interesting going on right now in sustainable fashion or how people are thinking about fabric and recycling it or creating it? Um, I'd love to hear your very overhead spiel on sustainable fashion right now. Yeah, so the Fashion Institute of Technology is actually one of the the biggest universities that has like a sustainability push. They oh, cool! Department um, around it. It's kind of amazing. Um, you know, I have to give the fashion industry as a whole like a lot of credit. Um, they've made a lot of headway in you know the last I don't know I'd probably say like six years of just mm-hmm. becoming a lot more sustainable. I don't really like using that word, but you know, um, they really are, there are really some innovative programs out there. The the thing that I'm seeing the most though, is, um, a lot of brands are hearing into something that's, um, ties into like the circular economy, but making their own products circular. So what that means is anything that's pushed out as a product into the world, they're hoping that consumers can find a way to continue the life cycle of that product. Um, but what that actually means from a brand side is like, what are the programs that they're offering that make Mm -hmm. them a circular brand? So there's a company, there's two companies I want to mention one called subsurface that's based out of LA. Um, my friend Carrie is the head designer there. Um, and they have a circularity program that, you know, when you feel like you're tired of your dress, you can send it in and they'll find another way to use it. And I'm pretty sure you Mm -hmm. get a discount or a kickback from it. So, you know, through that. And then there's other companies, um, like one called Queen of Raw. And she actually, Queen of Raw is like a plat, an enterprise platform for brands like Nike. So say Nike has like bulk or surplus of um, product and they want to sell it off or they want to get rid of it. Instead of doing what they would normally do in the past of just tossing it, they can connect. It's like a marketplace. They can connect with someone like Converse and sell sell the fabric. Um, and it's all done. It's a market. It's like an AI marketplace. So it's all done with just like a click from like whomever is overseeing supply. Um, and Super cool. yeah, so a lot of innovation is happening very quickly in that world. That's great. Cause I, I had to laugh when you, when you said you have to give the fashion industry credit. Cause I feel like we, we very often don't give the fashion industry very much credit at all. No. <laughs> so I'm sure they're appreciative. Um, and that's really interesting to learn about FIT and uh, their their growth in that specific program. Yeah. Um, and then on your Instagram, you talk through a lot of policy stuff and a lot of really great tangible takeaways. Um, what are you seeing your audience like asking the most questions about right now? Or what do you think people are coming to you for that they want to learn about in terms of climate policy? Um, around climate policy, I think there's just appetite for understanding. I think, you know, to the point of your question earlier, I think, I think Americans and at least my audience, not, it's not their job to know. I think a lot of people don't know how policy is crafted or influenced, um, or maybe that they don't know, but there's just a disconnect of like, you know, why something would or wouldn't pass or the timeline around things. So Mm -hmm. I don't even know that it's climate policy specifically, but it is more process oriented that I'm, that I get a lot of questions on um, and how we can affect that change. What's the easiest way to do that as an individual? Yeah, that's great. Cause as you said that, I was like, I don't know, isn't it how they do it on the West wing? That seems, but that's seems that's like how policies are crafted. Yeah, that's how most people are doing it. So yeah. yeah. Okay. So we come to you for the truth. <laughs> try. I try to make things a little bit easier, a little bit more understandable. Yes. Um, and we always love to end with like actionable takeaways, tangible things that our audience can, you know, they leave this interview, they close out their AirPods and they're like, okay, I know one resource that I can go to to learn more. So what are your favorite resources? What do you like to share and check up on 
Um, you probably view some more advanced climate policy reading, but maybe slightly more entry level uh, for our audience to go to get more information about all of this. Yeah, um, I think the the newsletter that I first signed up for when I was interested in taking this path, and I still subscribe to them to this day, um, it's called Carbon Brief Daily. And they send out an email every single day about the most updated climate news. Um, but there is a lot of policy overlap and the implications around that. We love a newsletter. Yeah. Um, oh, this one looks awesome. I'm going to sign up right now. Okay. Nicole, you've been an awesome guest. This is now your moment of shameless self-promotion. What are you working on? Where can people find you on the internet or in other places where they can find and support your work? Awesome. Yeah. So until July 6th, go to the Smithsonian in BC, um, see my, the US Bioreactor at the Futures exhibit, um, post a photo on Instagram and tag me at Nicole Lohr. That's awesome. Oh, I wish I had a reason to go to DC sometime soon. Love that. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone who's listening right now for listening to this episode of We Got Goals. We will be back next week, uh, continuing our April focus on the environment and climate change. And I love this framing now on being climate optimists.